Hello, and welcome to the Good Mood Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Stephanie Cordes, naturopathic doctor, and we talk about polyvagal theory. We were introduced to the vagus nerve through Dr. Dave Miller, ND, the gut gangster, a few episodes ago. And in today's episode, we learn more about the vagus nerve with Dr. Steph, who is a naturopathic doctor and another mental health advocate, such as myself. Steph is obsessed with polyvagal theory, which discusses how our our stress response can throw us into fight or flight, but also into shutdown via the vagus nerve. And through stimulating our ventral vagal response, we can actually enter into the safe and social states that create calm and connected nervous systems and help us heal from trauma or prevent burnout. We discuss the concept of safety and how to cultivate it through context, choice, and connection, which are the three C's from the work of Deb Dana. Steph talks about important soothing techniques that can help regulate the vagus nerve. We discuss somatic psychotherapy and how sometimes body work like acupuncture can send important safety signals to the nervous system, calming thoughts, and helping us co-regulate. We also discuss my new obsession, attachment theory, and how that relates to our vagus nerve. It's such a fun conversation. Steph is a real ND hippie and she practices in Guelph, Ontario. She's passionate about mental health, social justice, inclusivity, and acupuncture. And in addition to being an ND, Steph also has training as a doula. She's worked with those living with HIV in the LGBTQ community in Toronto. She's a member of POCA, which is a community acupuncture association, and she practices community acupuncture in Guelph. She's also registered with Rainbow Health Ontario. She has a special interest in mental wellness, digestion, trauma, addiction, and LGBTQ health. She believes in increasing accessibility to complementary care using an anti-oppressive and trauma-sensitive approach. And in this episode, we talk trauma, particularly at the end where we mention sexual trauma and violence. So please feel free to avoid this episode if you find these topics triggering or to let go of this episode when they come up at the end. I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode. It's a must listen for anyone who suffers from anxiety, low mood, or who feels on the, on the verge of burnout sometimes. So essentially all of us. Polyvagal theory and trauma-informed work, as well as somatic forms of psychotherapy, are becoming so much more commonplace, and this is a great place to be introduced to these topics in a conversational and accessible way. Steph is so knowledgeable, passionate, and approachable. I love chatting with her, and I hope you love listening. Hey, Steph! Welcome, Dr. Steph. (laughs) (laughs) How, How is it going? It's it's going pretty okay. Like most days are pretty good. And then I have the random write-off day, which is usually like, um, I guess one of the reasons why I love polyvagal theory, because on the write-off days, I'm like, okay, what state am I in? What does this mean? What can I do about this? Where am I on the ladder? Which um, which I find really helpful because as soon as we start to approach uh, those situations with a sense of curiosity, it takes a lot of the like, the shame out of it and it gives us a little bit of space to um, consider other options and to like sit in those feelings and let them happen sometimes yeah like when you're curious it's it's pretty much impossible to be judgmental and usually shame comes shame and judgment kind of go together but if you're curious you don't have any preconceived notions about the thing that you're looking at so there's this openness yeah it could be whatever it is yeah 
Yeah. And like awe's in there too, right? Like you, you leave yourself open to like seeing the beauty of the world and nature and all of that. You get out of your head a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you're like, yeah. that's an ugly flower. I hate you flower. You're like, well, <laughs> yeah. oh, look at this flower. So- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you become a hippie overnight. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like awe and curiosity kind of, yeah, it puts you in hippie state immediately. Which yeah. Is, which is maybe the key for a good mood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But let, let's jump into polyvagal because you're already using polyvagal terminology. Can you explain to us what that is? So there's, there's no really simple way to explain polyvagal theory because it's pretty in depth. And usually when I, when I talk to my clients about it, I'm usually just taking like a piece of the theory that I think is really uh, applicable to them. And then I kind of just send them to other resources like to Stephen Porges or Deb Dana, who have like a lot more resources and information about it. Um, but essentially, I will try. So um, in school, we learned about uh, the autonomic nervous system, right? And you have the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And the way we learned about it was they were like these two opposing forces. One is like the fight or flight fear response. And the other one is rest and digest. When in fact, Stephen Porges is like, hey, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and it's, he talks about it in three stages. Um, so the top, so I, before I mentioned the polyvagal ladder, which is a term that Deb Dana uses. Um, and she uses a ladder because when you go through the stages, sometimes it feels a little bit like you're climbing up or you're like going down the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, the ladder of arousal kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and at the top, you kind of like, you feel like you're in control. You have a little bit of foresight, Um, it's like easy to see other people's nervous systems and what they're doing. And then the further down you get, the more like inward, um, you get. Mm -hmm. Um, and so at the top you have like the ventral vagal. So it's more the safe and social place. Um, this is where it's easy to concentrate and focus. It's also a lot easier to socialize with other people in this place. There's certain behaviors that just happen automatically. So like, for example, our body language changes, um, our voice changes, we tend to use the more prosodic voice. So the prosodic voice is like that voice that you pull out when you're like talking to puppies or a baby. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a little bit more tone in your voice as opposed to like a flat affect. Mm-hmm. Um, your eardrums change. So your eardrums actually um, get a little bit tighter so they can pick up the higher sounds. So if somebody else has like a prosodic voice in your environment, you can pick it up. Um, yeah. And then the facial muscles too. So like where the vagus nerve, the ventral vagus branch, um, goes into the, um, into the brainstem, that part of the brainstem also, um, innervates muscles of the face. So our facial expressions actually change when we start to feel safe. And then if we drop down the ladder, so let's say there's a threat in our environment and we drop down into sympathetic Sympathetic is actually, it's not a, a branch of the vagus nerve. Um, it's, our, it's our sympathetic nervous system. And this is the fight or flight. This is where we either, um, we either try to fight off the threat or we try to run away from the threat. Our eardrums relax. So now we're tuned into the loud booming sounds. And if somebody is like being a hippie in our environment and starts going, oh, look at these flowers. How beautiful. We might not actually hear that or it might sound annoying to us. Mm. Um, and we're just purely focused on survival. 
And then if for whatever reason, we can't get out of that situation, um, or in the past we've had situations where we haven't been able to get out, then we can drop even further down the ladder, which is shut down. This is the dorsal vagal branch of the vagus nerve. It's, the, it's another part of the um, parasympathetic nervous system. And this part isn't really the rest and digest. This is total shutdown. So this is like dissociation. This is fainting. This is um, like apathy, not really caring much. Sometimes it can look a little bit like sadness too. Um, and people tend to get stuck here. It's really hard to get out. Um, but what's really useful about the latter is that often people can use movement. So to try to kind of go into like the sympathetic movement to try and get them back up to the safe and social. Mm, interesting, right? You can start to activate because we, we often think about the sympathetic as bad. It's like, oh, it's fight or flight. We don't want that. But when yeah. we're in shutdown, maybe we need to kind of activate that, that branch of the nervous system to kind of get us back into the window of tolerance, which I know you're going to talk about too. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably, right. yeah. Yeah. So, so, mm -hmm. so the window of tolerance is a place where you feel safe and social, but it's also, it's like the amount of stress that you can handle and stay in that place. So another word for that is resilience, right? So essentially it's like how you act in the face of stress and how much stress can you handle before you start going down the ladder. Um, along that lines, too, um, in the safe and social, in the ventral vagal, um, there's also mixed states. So very rarely are we purely in one state. Um, and mixed states might look like, um, like tag when you're a kid, right? So you're like still in sympathetic mode, but you're still feeling safe. Or when you're like, when you're embraced by a friend and you're holding still, that would be like, the parasympathetic like immobilization, but still in safe and social. Mm -hmm. And so if kids go through their childhood and don't have opportunities where they can practice, you know, the sympathetic mode in safe and social or like resting and still feel safe, then these adults end up having a lot of, you know, attachment disorders. I was just right? happy yeah. it up. <laughs> love attachment theory. That's that I'm just obsessed now with it. I feel like that's the next place I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny, actually. Like, so, I mean, a little personal, maybe a little bit too personal, but I've had a string of, um, like, dating experiences where my friends would be like, have you heard about attachment theory? Have you read about attachment theory? Because you sound like you're preoccupied, attached. And, but I'm not, I'm not, like, you know, there's definitely a spectrum, I think, for insecure attachment. And I was like, and I remember just kind of dismissing that reading the book attached and feeling like, okay, it's kind of pop psychology. But then recently I discovered uh, Dr. Kirk Honda from psychology in Seattle. Oh my gosh, write it down. It's so good. He is a YouTube. So he has a, a great podcast, uh, hundreds of episodes, maybe thousands of episodes. Um, and he deep dives into attachment theory and different um, um, psychological constructs. Uh, he's a couples therapist and a family therapist. But he also has a YouTube channel where he analyzes reality TV shows. And it's amazing. Like, he'll pause it. He'll pause, the, like, a conflict. And he'll be like, okay, this is what's happening. This is the attachment style playing out. He's like, I'll bet you the next thing that this person will say is this. Then he hits play. And it literally comes out of their mouth. I'm like, this is the thing I want to learn. <laughs> um, but, yeah, attachment styles are everything. It, it shows up as health anxiety. It shows up as depression. Like, so 
Yeah. Tell us about attachment theory. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know enough about it to talk about attachment theory, but social interaction is so important for our mental health, right? And one of the ways that we stay in safe and social and our window of tolerance can grow is to co-regulate with other humans. So like, remember when I was talking about those face muscles and the voice, like it's important that that's thrown back at you and that you're playing, you know, like a little bit of like, catch or something with this other person that really helps bring your nervous system to that place of safe and social. So if your attachment style is off a little bit, that makes it very difficult Mm. to like have meaningful relationships with other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's also difficult to actually receive that co-regulation. Like if you're in, um, if you've had the experience throughout your life of people not being there for you, being consistently distant or not giving you the love and attachment you've needed. And maybe you've developed an avoidant coping style where you don't, you need your space. You don't seek attachment, even though you still have a deep desire for it. Um, you know, you're, you're, you know, potentially your nervous system looks a lot like that dorsal vagal kind of shutdown response. And you might not be compelled because you've developed this understanding throughout your life that people are not a safe place to go. So you're not necessarily going to be compelled to go and seek that person to regulate your nervous system. It's almost like something that needs to be worked on and taught. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It starts with curiosity. Yeah. And, when, and with those people, you're often like, oh, there was something off about them. I don't know. I don't know why. Like, usually it's just, you know, they're in like shot down or sympathetic and they just can't throw those safe and social signals back at you. And it just, it feels off. And then because they're signaling danger to you, right? They're setting off your nervous system. So one of the reasons why I like purely, I totally fell in love with polyvagal theory, like overnight. And a big part of that was because when it came to mental health, everybody was talking about like cognition, 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 right? And I would often say even to my clients that like, okay, I understand here that I shouldn't be anxious, but I don't get it here. Like Mm -hmm. I can tell myself like morning, afternoon, day and night, like I shouldn't be anxious. There's no threat. This person won't hurt me, but I can still feel it in my body. So why is that? And polyvagal theory, it's like, it talks about top down, but it also talks about bottom up. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we say that, um, the uh, story follows the state. So that like uh, internal monologue that you have going on in your head, that's like just the backdrop, da, 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 da. And then what did you say then? And then how did they react? That's all reflective of your state. Mm-hmm. So it's not even necessarily true. We make up all these stories that end up, you know, influencing our direction in life, who we're friends with, whatever. And it really has to do with our state. And it's, it's, subconscious but like we can definitely tune into it right Mm -hmm. and then as soon as we know it and we know the dialogue and um we practice a little bit of mindfulness around it then it's a little bit easier for us to like separate ourselves from that chatter Mm -hmm. totally because you could you could feel those signals of anxiety and it could be because there's something wrong that you need to respond to like a tiger jumping out of the bushes at you or whatever important yeah you're taking a big wave surfing. Yeah. Well, you're on a podcast, you know? <laughs> you're on a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Feel the things. But yeah. if you were just sitting yeah, in a quiet wood and you felt these, oh, I'm recording a podcast kind of, kind of, you know, yeah. nerves, it, you know, immediately your mind is going to start to say, what's wrong? What's going on? There must be something wrong. I'll do this all the time. I'll start to look in my life like, what is, yeah. what is out of uh, authenticity or out of integrity in my life? And then I start, you start searching 
but it yeah. could just be blood sugar. It could just be 100%. You know, just, just the inner workings of the body doing its thing. Yeah. And yeah. How, how do you use mindfulness in this case? Um, well, uh, with specifically with polyvagal theory, I have recently um, really gotten into Deb Dana and she really likes mapping out the states um, just to get to know yourself a little bit better. So um, by writing out what situations put you into, usually the best way to start is sympathetic because people usually really know what that feels like, the fight or flight, the anxiety. So using examples of what puts you into that state, uh, what that feels like in your body, um, but also then the triggers, like what gets you there. Um, then usually you would go to um, the dorsal vagal, so the shutdown, the immobilized state. And again, like situations that get you there or like reinforce that state um, and triggers that put you there. Uh, and then usually you end in safe and social, partly because it can be really frustrating to not come up with an example of what you feel safe, safe and social in. So this way you're like getting the practice of like, what is the state and what, what situation am I in? Um, but it also, um, just because if, the person has difficulty finding it. You don't want to start with like a roadblock, a difficult mm -hmm. task, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then with the safe and social, there's like no triggers that really get you there. But like I recently came across the word glimmers, which is glimmers. Kind of cute and hippie-ish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like what can get you out of there, but also like what keeps you there? Mm. So like for me, it's definitely biking, definitely knitting, walking outside in nature, but also like there's key people in my life that I feel really, really safe and like authentic around. Mm. Um, yeah, those are usually the ones. Oh, and traveling. Oh my mm. goodness, traveling. Mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. what it does to my nervous system, but it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've recently appreciated the, the, um, maybe the skill or the, the resource of using other people's frontal cortexes to help me regulate. So when I'm having my spinning, I'll just kind of go to a few key friends and be like, okay, this is what I'm thinking. I know it's ridiculous, but I just need you to tell me that it's, it's ridiculous as well. And yeah. there's something about that. Just it's like polling the, the, the social group you know? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, tell you that thing that you're telling yourself is no, it's fine. Or they'll just give it yeah. a different perspective or, and then it's okay. I'm good you know, yeah. immediately. Yeah. And, and I've tried not to, I thought, okay, well, how come I can't self-soothe? How come I can't just do that on my own? Like, you know, my, with my cognitive behavior therapy thought record and processing, and you can do that for sure, but there's something really powerful about outsourcing our emotional regulation to the community, to our, to our community, you know? Yes. And I think also to say those things that typically trigger anxiety or shut down around somebody who's co-regulating with you at the same time. So like you're talking about it again, but in a situation where you feel held and like safe in that situation and it takes a little bit of the trigger out of it, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a, yeah. Like my friend Lisa recently, almost every single time I see her, she's like, did you know we're in a pandemic? <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, that's what I tell clients all day, every day. Like, you know, mm. like, sure, there's stuff going on, but we're also in a pandemic. My, like, I need a friend to tell me that too. <laughs> it's, yeah. So if you, yeah, we were like, yeah, for the last few months, we have, as a society, not been safe or social. I mean, we have been yeah. on one level, but there's definitely a level where social 
um, interactions are obviously much different. And there is this sort of ominous sense of lack of safety because there's a pandemic going around. Yeah. How do we actually regulate ourselves in this circumstance, especially yeah. since it's new? Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, recently listening to a podcast where Deb Dana was against a podcast. I think it was the, the uh, now it's called Stuck Not Broken, but it used to be called the Polyvagal Podcast with Jason Sinceri. Um, that's how I like initially got into it, especially because his first couple episodes used like music as examples of like mm. sympathetic and mm. yeah, it's great. Um, but Deb Dana was recently a guest and she said, um, when we're in safe and social, there's three things that we look out for. Um, and one of them is context. So like right now, the context is we're in a crisis, we're in a pandemic. The second one is choice. We don't have a choice. <laughs> like it involves us or not. We could like change where we're moving. There's still a global pandemic. And the third is connection. Mm. Right. And they're, they're all being challenged right now in a huge, huge way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, totally. how do we find connection? Or the, like, the other day I had a person come in for um, acupuncture for pregnancy and I'd never met them before. So I like had to go outside to like take my mask off and introduce myself. Cause I was like, what am I going to do? I can't just like needle somebody with a mask on and they've never seen my face before. Unless you need one of those masks where there's a picture of the bottom half of your yes. face on the mask. <laughs> <laughs> or there's like the see-through ones now. Have you read about those? Oh, there are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For people who need to mouth read. I mean, you know, dentists and nurses and surgeons, they've been wearing these surgical masks 100%. at work all the time. So they're yeah. kind of like, mm, why is it yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also those situations are typically not very like safe feeling situations. Right. Mm-hmm. So like our, our society in general really focuses on security over safety. So like, mm-hmm. think about it, like the police state mm-hmm. <laughs> are like, our hospitals, you go in there, there's security guards, right? Mm-hmm. There's like really bright fluorescent lighting, which makes me feel like I'm being interrogated. Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm-hmm. face masks. There's like, there's just so much there. There's like this, like the building hums at a level that like feels like danger. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah, you're hearing codes go off. You're seeing people running. Yeah. Can you actually make that distinction between safety and security? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I haven't really thought through it that much. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. Um, so security, I think security is often um, this idea of like protecting um, goods, right? Like protecting... Yes property mm-hmm. and then sometimes also protecting people but it's more like protecting people's lives more so than it's protecting their well-being like sometimes people are you know like beaten down in like for, for the sake of security right maybe it's like yeah like tackling someone to get them out of the way of a bullet or like yeah. push them out of oncoming traffic there's a roughness to yeah. it even though it yeah. has like best interests at heart you know yeah um, but I also often see security as something that like reinforces norms and reinforces structural inequalities mm-hmm. um, in a very big way. Like especially on our continent, typically security has been used to protect the property of like predominantly white, mm. straight, 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in a lot of ways, it still does reinforce those norms. It's almost, um, yeah, it's like security is trying to, um, to preserve comfort, which is different. I think we talked about this in, in you know, people that travel. People. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's sort of the, the, the people making the laws, the people dominating the culture are trying to preserve their own comfort. Right. Which then it typically is like the white cis, you know, person yeah. or um, identity, but um, it's, yeah, it's almost like I think of like people that travel and they're like, Oh, I was so uncomfortable and I didn't feel safe. And it's like, no, no, you were, you were safe. I mean, there were street vendors talking to you or maybe there were crowds or there were people you didn't speak the language. Maybe you were concerned because things just seem to operate in a way that's different from what you're used to. There was no lack of safety in that moment. Of course, when you travel, there can be moments when you're unsafe, if you're robbed or whatever, but in those moments you're, yeah. you're unsafe, you were just uncomfortable. And it's sort of this distinction between those two things, you know, it's like there's actual lack of safety where your body and your mind and your emotions can be harmed versus discomfort where things are just not quite the norm that you're used to. Um, maybe you're not still occupying the position of power and control that you're used to. Maybe like that. Yeah. 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 I've, I'm, I'm usually when I travel, I feel safer. <laughs> right, <laughs> so yeah. it's hard for me to relate to that. <laughs> right. It also depends on the place for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, there's moments that you could be in danger when you're traveling, but just like you can be yeah. in danger at any, any time, you know, Absolutely. You, know, you can be in a yeah. pandemic, for example. Yeah. Here. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then safety, there's actually, there's certain cues that happen with safety. So first of all, for safety, feelings of safety to occur, there needs to be the absence of a threat or danger because our nervous system, our um, autonomic nervous system is always scanning our environment for threat, including our internal environment. It's always like, is something wrong, something wrong, something wrong. And that always takes priority. So, um, and like quickly by like a reflex, um, and shuts down or, you know, overrides any thoughts or whatever, actually like changes our thoughts, as we said before. Yeah. So in the absence of that, if like our internal thermometer says it's like, it's okay to have these feelings of safety, then we can start picking up on those cues. And I already talked about some of those, like the prosodic voice, the sing song voice, like certain facial features, but also like predictability, which I think goes along with the, like the travel, mm-hmm. like knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, like soft lighting is great. Um, being able to escape if you wanted to, or leave if you wanted to. So like freedom of movement, Mm -hmm. uh, which is super huge. If you think about schools, like the lighting's off, you're forced to sit down at an age when you have all this yang energy, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just like, think as hard as you can, even though like all you really want to do is, you know, um, Mm -hmm. is mobilize and move. Mm -hmm. Listen to your body. Like you're learning to be in your body. Your body wants to move. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then especially, you know, like with all the weird social dynamics that happen in school. Yeah, right. Brutal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, like, what what means safe could be different to different people, right? So, like, sometimes being immobilized, like lying in bed, can be pretty scary for some people. Yeah. So it's also based on experience. Like I recently had somebody come in who said they don't feel safe when they're perfectly still, which is like partly a huge problem here, but then they do when they feel like playful safe. So when they like involve a little bit of the sympathetic there, then they feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting. Do you know how that might form? Is that because their body's going, it's reminding sort of dorsal vagal or there's just a history of being mobilized in situations that were unsafe? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So it is yeah. a trigger in that sense. Or, or, like, or like a history of getting attention that you want when, you, when you're the class clown. Mm-hmm. Which is actually, <laughs> right? that's a good point, right? So a lot of this is like, if you've learned to establish um, secure connection through various means. So yeah, if you're sort of, you're like, okay, I, you know, attention or, mm-hmm. or attachment or love was given sort of um, precariously, like it was, it was inconsistent. And the moments that I was more likely to get it, I was being more of a class clown. I was being more out there. I was being more visible. People would notice me. Maybe they would yell at me, but at the same time, I'd also get attached. I'd get connection. So it's this habit that we just perpetuate because um, because we've learned that that gives us what we want, that safety and security that we need. Yeah. And also it's not just like it's, it's learned, but it's also the way that we survived. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like yeah. Because without that connection, you can't survive emotionally, physically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like this is how you get through. Um, and this is how like some people are still getting through, but, but it's sometimes it can also wreak havoc or like interfere with your ability to form meaningful mm-hmm. connections with other people. Um, mm-hmm. which I think feel like is what life is all about really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so interested in the, so we think of dorsal vagal, I'm thinking like, I don't know if you've used the word, but dissociation. So dissociation to realization, sort of that hypo arousal where we're, um, we're sort of retreating a bit from life. Like our nervous system is in that shutdown mode. Yeah. And you're mentioning how difficult it can be for a lot of people to identify that they're in that state. And so often with some of the work around um, learning more about our states, um, Deb Dana, I think it was the one that 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 we were speaking of, starts with sympathetic arousal because it's obvious. It's obvious. It's it's more obvious yeah. to notice that you're anxious, that your heart's pounding, that you're you feel sweaty, that you're you're scared. Um, but what if someone doesn't really feel those things? What if they are they spend most of their time in that dorsal vagal response? Like, are there tips? Like, can you maybe describe that state for us so we can? Yeah, well, well, there's a wide variety of states. And I like, I really haven't looked enough into dissociation Mm -hmm. to talk about the different Mm -hmm. forms of dissociation. Mm -hmm. But uh, typically, what I see is like, sometimes it can be prolonged, sometimes somebody is in it for a very long time. And sometimes it comes and goes depending on like the state they're in. So sometimes I have somebody come in and they'll just, they'll be absolutely fine until I ask, let's say about their digestion. And then suddenly their stare goes kind of blank and their eyes go glossy. And then I know, Oh, okay. There's something there that they don't want to tell me. And I'm not a therapist. So I'm not going to dig really hard. This is just kind of where like, I might reflect back to them that that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe try and plant some sort of a seed. I probably, in those situations, I often do acupuncture around it because acupuncture has a great way to make things move without actually like bringing up or reliving that trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, um, but, uh, to recognize it, usually, usually it's people who have been diagnosed with depression or don't find, have difficulty finding joy in life. Um, Often it's like a monotone voice, which again can be like difficult for you yourself to uh, recognize. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like very much sometimes like the chronic fatigue picture, 
you know, where it's like difficult to get off the couch or like burnout can look a little bit like that too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there's a wide range that falls within there. It's almost that that what we call like adrenal fatigue where things are just shut down, you know, totally, totally foggy or yeah. 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 But then sometimes too, it's worth, it's like used as a tool. Like recently I had a client Mm -hmm. come in and we're like talking about, um, one of their parents who they have like a real history with, but like, they're like, oh, but it doesn't really bring up any feelings right now. Like, it's just not there. And like, you can totally recognize that, like, as soon as they ta- start talking about that person, it's like dissociation. Like, they can just talk about what happened, but uh, they can't really t- feel about what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had an experience when I was an intern at the Canadian College of Natural Ethic Medicine, I was working with a patient and he, we'd had a few sessions together. It was, a, it was a somatic complaint, a body related complaint. And at one point he just kind of said, do you think this could be related to PTSD? And I thought, oh yeah, potentially. Yeah. Because we can't really find a cause for this physical thing. Tell me about that. You have PTSD. I think we'd had 10 sessions together, acupuncture and and then he, he um, with acupuncture needles in, staring at the ceiling, just in a very casual tone, described yeah. really significant trauma that had gone on throughout his, his childhood and his developmental years until he left home at 18. His wife was sitting with us just sobbing as she's, as she's heard the story before, but just you could see her expressing emotion because uh, responding to the situation with the level of emotional tone that you might expect, you know, from such... Um, yeah, from such an experience. And he was just very calmly. And of course, as an intern, and like you said, we're not psychotherapists. And especially as an intern, I, um, I definitely I needed some supervision around how to work with him and help him in that state. But um, I remember thinking, huh, like he seems so, quote, unquote, cool with it. Like, it seems like he's gotten over yeah. it, let's say, or he's yeah. like, it's not triggering anything for him. He seems fine. He seems strong resilient but what was actually happening for him is he was um disconnected from the experience and and, and dissociated from it you know yeah which which in a lot of situations is appropriate right Mm -hmm. like sometimes addressing that stuff too soon or too fast Mm -hmm. can just make the issue a lot lot worse right it's like in a way it's our body being like we just can't feel about that right now like it's just we're not ready (laughs) totally and that was the that yeah. was the supervision advice I I got when I was working with the social worker nice. talking case. She was like, you know, don't don't start digging, don't start asking questions. Um, what we what is appropriate to at this moment is to just establish safety generally yeah. and teach him about um, regulating his nervous system and staying in the window of tolerance. I know this happens with yeah. EMDR and different kinds of trauma work. It's stage one trauma yeah. work is is stabilization. And I know you do acupuncture. It's like, there's many techniques, um, meditation maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And with, with self-regulation too, there's different kinds of self-regulation, right? There's like top down and bottom up. Mm. We so often talk about the top down stuff, but it's like the bottom up that's really important to polyvagal theory. So top down is like mindfulness, meditation, CBT. Um, and then the bottom up is like, acupuncture, movement, some of yoga and some breath work that's kind of like straddling the two sides, right? Because like breathing is a conscious and a subconscious thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
but um, so so the the parasympathetic nervous system, ninety percent of it is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve plays a huge part in the parasympathetic nervous system, and eighty percent of that is actually bottom up. It's afferent mm-hmm. nerve signals. Mm-hmm. So it's actually like way more going up to the brain than down. So um, and 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 like the the examples we just talked about, where there's there's people who like recounting the information just sends them into shutdown and like trying to make them feel about it can be quite dangerous. And like, sometimes we don't actually have to. So like things like EMDR, things like acupuncture can actually help do this like bottom up regulation so that they can start, you know, climbing up that polyvagal ladder Mm-hmm. And then maybe eventually start to engage in some more of that, like co-regulation, safe and social behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because I think that's uh, the future of psychotherapy because so much of it was that top down cognitive behavior therapy, mind over matter, mind over yeah. mood. That yeah. literally is a workbook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Which I find absolutely, is, yeah. <laughs> like there is definitely an anti-cognitive behavior therapy um, group within psychotherapists. That was kind of like, CBT. yeah. But I, I really like CBT. I mean, it definitely has uses. But I find that the body somatic psychotherapy is so important because, like you said, most of it's coming up from the body. Yeah. Most of it is our body yeah. talking to our brain. Yeah. And if you think of like even diet, that's how you approach diet. It's like, just will yourself thinner. <laughs> yeah. I'm so gonna... problematic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just imagine myself taking off these pants yeah. and adipose tissue. Yeah. I know. I know what we're going to do. We're going to starve ourselves so that we go into sympathetic and our bodies just freak out more. <laughs> and I actually, yeah, I actually am I'm trying to bring this point home more where it's sort of like, so imagine, so my body, let's say, let's say I gain 20 pounds. And mm-hmm. and many people have have patients or even friends are like, tell you, should I go on the keto diet? Oh, okay. So tell me why you th- you want to go on the keto diet? Um, oh, well, I just been reading about it, and the truth is, I, I want to take off the this, these twenty pounds that I've gained. Oh, okay. Well, tell me about those twenty pounds. Like, first of all, is that inappropriate weight gain? Or sometimes people will say something yeah. like, oh, I just don't feel like myself. Like, I just feel like I'm a little okay. That's that's fine, you know. Um, because yeah. the, you can talk about how we're socialized to want to be thinner and da, 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 and all that, but sometimes yeah. we just don't feel like ourselves. We we feel like we've we've strayed a bit from our our equilibrium, our norm, and maybe that looks like weight gain as part of that picture. And some sort of okay, so uh, you know what you know what's kind of going on with that? What happened? Oh, I haven't really been exercising, and I've been feeling or this happened in my life, or essentially there's an extra stress um, that's been placed on them, and so it's like well. Why would we then put you on a diet that's going to increase your stress level? So because your body is maybe like, okay, you know what? Something's going on in this environment. I need an extra 20 pounds of energy yeah. that I'm going to use to deal with these stressful situations. Because what was stressful yeah. for us? It was like we had to repair injury, which takes a lot of energy, or we had to deal with starvation conditions or malnutrition. Like those were the big stressors. Um, so the body's like, hey, we need, we need a bank account. We need, some, we need something in the savings account. And we're like, no, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're like, no, we're gonna starve you. <laughs> so yeah, so, so I'm kind of like, okay, well, how about we just sleep more? Maybe do some restorative yoga, whatever, yeah, right? Like, yeah. um, rather than keto diet, you know, or maybe yeah. let's eating more. Let's eat more, and and sometimes eating more, right? Just more nutrient dense things, so the body yeah, can be like, 100%. oh, we're safe, we're good, we've got yeah. food. So a lot of this is counterintuitive from what we've been taught, which is like, you know, count your calories and. And put, yeah. you know, 
Yeah. And exercise really hard. Again, sometimes that can increase sympathetic too, if you overdo it. Right. Just in case your body was like, are we, are we running from a tiger? It's like, oh yeah, we are for sure. Because we're running a marathon away from this tiger. Yeah. yeah it's so intense. Yeah. yeah. And so things like acupuncture, um, I think self-compassion is, is something too with like stabilization. It's helpful. Um, 100%. What other bottom up, like what other techniques do you um, use with patients or have you found have been helpful because you even mentioned food, like, how does that sort of manifest? What kind of recommendations do you make around that? Yeah. So like you said, I, I often do um, approach it like changing the diet a little bit in terms of, okay, let's make sure you're getting enough fats, proteins, and fiber mm. um, so that your blood glucose isn't going all over the map because that can usually change your window of tolerance um, and send us down the ladder. Um, and of course, like hydration as well. Mm. Um Often adding green veggies can make a huge difference because a lot of, you know, our B vitamins, um, minerals, yeah, 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 all of those things, folic acid, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so I've done like a couple self holds for people. It's usually like touch and go depending on the person how, and how open they are. Sometimes it's like, Oh, let's try the self hold. Like I learned, um, the self hold from, I think her name is Marika Heinrich in, in Guelph. She did like a somatic experiencing group once. And she talked about how, like, if you cup the side of your face with one hand, because your vagus nerve comes into your ear and the side of your face here, and then the other hand you hold over your heart because your heart is innervated by your nervous system. And you just kind of like hold that and hold your head for a bit. Mm-hmm. It's quite relaxing and it feels really, really lovely. So like I recently did that with somebody or like mm-hmm. self hugs. Um, sometimes it's like an action. So I also really like sometimes talking about ritual because our lives are so devoid of any kind of like ceremony other than, you know, like graduation or Christmas and like often those center around commerce. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, so to have something like, you know, for example, somebody lost their parent and they felt like there were some things left unsaid. So I was like, why don't you write a letter and then do with that letter what you feel is good, like burn the letter or bury it. Sometimes like doing an action can help release those emotions too, instead of having them stuck in the body. Mm-hmm. I actually heard somebody say, <laughs> this is this is real off the hippie charts, but they're like, oh, depending on like your astrological sign, if you're air, water, oh earth. God. <laughs> oh my god like so if you're an earth sign bury a letter if you're a wow. fire sign burn it if you're a, i was like oh for sure because for me i want to put it in a bottle and send it out to sea because i'm a water sign <laughs> so, yeah stop and throw it to the wind <laughs> so funny yeah i don't think i'm i'm like quite confident enough to pull that one out <laughs> yeah sometimes i'll preface things like that by just being because there's something personal about that you know you yeah. might be like well i don't identify at all with being a, a virgo but um, but you know, so for someone that does kind of, it's, it connects it somehow to 100%. It makes it meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. It's important. And it makes the, like the action that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I often also use like nutrients or herbs, mm-hmm. um, depending on, you know, what stage people are at, what their other symptoms are. But recently I've like really gotten into using GABA partly because it's so affordable, but also it's so effective. And then I'm like, okay, GABA works for you. Now I have all these other things that I know also work on GABA. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I wasn't uh, dosing it high enough. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, they talk about like the pharma GABA versus the regular GABA. I find the regular GABA works just fine. Mm-hmm. I just need to dose it higher. Um, and that whole thing with the, like the blood brain barrier, apparently our vagus nerve has GABA receptors on it yeah. into the gut. So hello, maybe I'm activating the vagus nerve there. Yeah. And I think <laughs> that's why it like just, um, over the counter GABA supplement isn't addictive the way that like a benzo is yeah. right. A benzodiazepine, which activates GABA receptors, crosses the blood brain barrier, and then you can become addicted to it. It's one of the most addictive substances on the planet, but GABA right. lozenges, because they're just, they're activating, but like you said, it's 80% afferent. So by calming the vagus nerve, you're sending a signal from the gut to the brain, just feeling life is good. Everything's calm. Everything's yeah. good. Yeah. I've and been, then there's I've also like on the way up in the brainstem, there's the gatekeeper, right? Who's mm-hmm. like, is this important information? Is this going to go to the brain? Is this not going to go to the brain? So like perhaps too, by having those like checkpoints on the way up, instead of it just going into the blood brain barrier, it's not like, Mm. it's not like being punched across the face. It's more of just a like, Hey, Hey, let's lift you up a little bit. Yeah. Like (laughs) let's let's really, yeah, there's, there's competing signals. Like there's the signal of danger coming from the body or emotions in the mind is, is receiving that. But now there's another signal. There's some GABA, which just for whoever doesn't know is a calming neurotransmitter. Yes. Activates the vagus nerve, um, parasympathetic nervous system. So it's like, okay, well actually here's a GABA signal. So there's, it's kind of calming, maybe muting that danger signal. Um, Whereas yeah, yeah, like a benzo, a lot of people will talk about how, oh, my doctor prescribed me anxiety medication, told me not to take it longer than two weeks, which is now standard. So we really don't have tools for pharmacological tools for anxiety anymore. Because yeah. the benzos are so addictive. Um, and SSRIs. Then like, yeah, maybe exactly. Yeah. Like SSRIs, you know. Yeah. Um, but they're like, okay, so I, you know, I took Advan or I took clonazepam. I took a little bit, but I felt like it made me so tired because it just, like you said, punched yeah. across the face. You just yeah. that window of tolerance right into hypoarousal. Yeah. It's like override. Mm, totally. <laughs> it's almost like, like the vagus nerve is there as like the conductor, right? To be like, okay, we're going to get let a little bit of like sympathetic in here. Okay. We're going to put the brakes on that. That's feeling a little bit dangerous and that's not appropriate. Okay. We're going to relax. We're going to let, whereas like the GABA is just, uh, sorry, the, the benzo is just like, you're out. Yeah. You're <laughs> you done. There's a tiger that's flying yeah. at you, but like yeah. you're not responding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which can feel like dangerous, except you can't, you can't have that response anymore. Yeah. yeah it's like you want to be able to operate heavy machinery if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that's like, don't operate every machinery, you're like, okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. What does this mean? Yeah. 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 You might not want to use the dishwasher under the influence of this medication. It's, yeah. 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 But no, I think, yeah, GABA, I've it, it experienced a renaissance for, with that too. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, like probiotics, we know probiotics mm-hmm. also can release GABA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, that's right, like that's another right. connection. Like it might work through the immune system, but it may also work through the vagus nerve. Yeah, I love how this all comes together because Dan, Dave Miller was talking about, and he was he was a couple episodes ago, and he is talking about how same thing like the the butt to brain connection and working with the vagus nerve and taking the stress off the um, the physical danger signals of the gut. So like anytime there's inflammation that sends information from the vagus nerve to the brain being like, there's an issue, there's an issue, there's danger. And so he's like, by just calming the gut with, you know, deglycerinated licorice lozenges or something 
um, it can help just take a load off that signal. And then Kim Bretz, who's the microbiome person, she, again, is talking about, yeah, GABA and the microbiome and how, again, this information travels with the vagus nerve. And so I love how vagus nerve is getting its, its time in the sun. Yeah, it's such a star right now. Yeah. <laughs> nerve like, yeah. Yeah. And when I learned about it, it was like, oh my God, my, like, my nervous system makes sense now. <laughs> like now I get it. Like I always got it, but it's, it's quite an experience to have words for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You can start to say like, like, how are you on the Vegas scale of one to 10? You're like, pretty good. Pretty. <laughs> yeah. 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 Or like a couple weeks ago. Where like I looked, I looked at, I think it was like a flower, and I was like, usually this would make me really excited. Like, what's going on here? Oh, I'm in a shutdown. And it's so nice to say like shut down instead of depressed. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or like some sometimes I'm shut down, but I'm not sad. I'm just like, yeah, I just emoted for too long. <laughs> you know, I was spending too much time on other people's other people's emotions that I'm just like emotionally burnt out. And like, I'm at a place where I just like need to stare at a wall, but it's like, Oh, I'm not depressed or sad. I'm just like shut down for a little bit. This is like a bit of a reset. But then also when it hits a point of like, okay, now I'm feeling stuck. What do I do? Okay. Let's do like some soft movement. Like maybe like running on a treadmill right now isn't a good idea. Cause I don't necessarily want to be like in full blown sympathetic, but I want to like nicely get myself up there. And then if I'm feeling anxious, okay, now maybe is the time to like go for a run to release some of that energy. <laughs> right. right. right? Yeah. That's really it's, and it's through recognizing it, that you can then name it and then respond in the way that, that you deem appropriate. Exactly. And the, and, and a lot like mindfulness, the more you talk about it and the more you explore it, the more that is accessible to you in the moment. Because it's like really, it's like subconscious, but available to us consciously. But like, we got to tune in to do it, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's so true because I think a big part of it, like even if I think of mindfulness, a lot of mindfulness almost encourages, because back to attachment theory, I think initially when they were doing the, so it, it, attachment theory came from Mary Amesworth experiments with the babies. Yeah, just for listeners. Like so strange, yeah, like the strange <laughs> situations test where about so uh, there'd be like a six month old baby. So obviously that that baby it cannot exist without its mother or a, a primary caregiver, um, primary parental figure, and um, so the mother or whoever would leave the room. But I think it, these are uh, experiments. I think in the seventies or eighties, so it was a mother in all the cases. But they've done it with other attachment figures. So the mother would leave the room. And um, 70% of the babies would be appropriately distressed and then soothed when she returned. Uh, About 30% of the babies would not care. Like they didn't seem to really interact with her when she was there. And when she left, they didn't really notice. They were more interested in like a box of toys in the room. When she returned, they didn't really look at her. They didn't really care. That's more associated with avoidant attachment style. Um, And uh, and then about another, um, sorry, that was 15%. Another 15% were extremely distressed when she left the room. And then when she came back, they weren't easily soothed. Um, Some of them were violent towards her. Some of them were extremely clingy. They wouldn't leave her alone anymore. And that's associated with the more preoccupied or anxious attachment style. Um, And I think a lot of, and actually when those experiments were first starting, 
they because the the man John Bowlby that um, came up with attachment theory he was British and in that society or that culture it was almost um, heralded to be um, mm. to be um, avoidant attached so it'd be like you know exactly like children are seen and not heard children should be you shouldn't talk to children in that in that um, I forget the name of the voice that you're talking about the Pre- oh, prosodic. The, the like, prosodic. Sing song. Yeah, don't talk to children like that. Talk to yeah. them like adults. You know, they're to be stoic. Be exactly stoic. <laughs> yeah. They actually thought that the avoidant attachment style was normal, and yeah. it actually that attachment style doesn't exist. They've repeated the experiment. It's so interesting. They they've repeated this experiment in different cultures, and they found, for example, in Japanese culture, the avoidant attachment style does not exist. And it's simply just because the way that children are raised typically in that culture where they really are with their parents and with their family units all the time, there isn't any time when the parent's not there. So, um, so that was sort of seen like the, the avoidant attachment style, the child that's stoic that doesn't care if the mother's there or not was seen as the healthy quote unquote healthy type. And I feel like a lot of mindfulness circles because one of the misconceptions with mindfulness is like, oh, you're not feeling your emotions or you're not reacting to your emotions or you're... So sometimes it can attract more avoidant attachment styles and potentially encourage that too, right? Like, but I think what the point that you've been making is that, a, that mindfulness is about really understanding what's happening with your internal state and noticing if you are in shutdown or noticing when you are in hypoarousal or that sort of dorsal vagal response. And yeah. then being able to respond appropriately. It's not just yeah. about like, well, I have an emotion. I need to keep everything in and controlled and down. 100%. And like, sometimes not even act on it. Sometimes just choose not to act on it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes even just noticing can take a little bit of the edge off of it or like make it less overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it also puts us in a position to like act versus react. Mm-hmm. We're like more likely to question what we're going to do if we're like I'm I'm feeling angry because I'm in sympathetic because of something that happened to me earlier today is this really how I want to act but I mean sometimes too like you just can't stop it you're just mad like it's not you don't it's yeah and it's totally not about not being mad yeah Um, it's maybe accessing the primary emotions if anger is a secondary emotion like oh I'm actually hurt yeah yeah but it's also, yeah, you know, normally if I'm mad, I throw things or say yeah. things I don't mean, and then I have to repair that. Yeah. But if I'm mad, I shut down, you know, but mm-hmm. it's, here's a way I can. Yeah. And it's giving you, on. yeah. Mm-hmm. And like giving you the, the option at least of like changing it or acting on it, if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Or even just noticing when you're throwing things, like being aware of how that one thing transitions to the next. Yeah. <laughs> so like, my problem is always keeping my emotions in. Like, like I was super, super anxious child, didn't want to upset anybody, wanted to keep the peace with everybody. This is partly why I like became who I am now. Cause it's like, I can read people's emotions really well. Right. Cause like Grab for me, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a super me, it's, yeah, yeah, it's totally a super Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, I get exhausted from that sometimes because like, if I'm in a large social group there's so many people's nervous systems that I've tuned into but because of that I'm often putting my own feelings on the back burner so like anger is something that like I understand I see it I feel it but when I feel it I really like have to encourage it and it's uncomfortable and I don't like it and when I do throw a thing it's like oh my god did I do that 
And then I'm like proud of myself. Quickly <laughs> pick it up. Never mind. Yeah, no, don't worry. Up and put it back yes. in the drawer. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you ever like screamed the loudest you could scream before? I, I yeah, have I? Yeah, when I was a kid in, in a pillow. And okay. yeah, yeah, I remember okay. as a kid being so, fr- I really didn't like anger because I had nowhere to put it. So I remember just feeling it bubble inside and just screaming in a pillow and, um, you know, muscle relaxation. I did yeah. tell the, the the last time I remember getting really angry. I had all these Thanksgiving leftovers. I mean, this is such a, a privileged story, but anyways, <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me seem like a four year old, which we do like, so a lot of these really like big reactions, we do go back to like, I think 100%. probably the emotional age I was at that was like eight or nine, but, yeah. um, I had all these Thanksgiving leftovers that I'd packed away. I had them in my fridge. I was excited to have, you know, food for, for lunch the next day. And uh, my family was over and they went into my fridge and they ate it all. And I just, and I felt my oh. understanding was that they were doing it to spite me, that it wasn't just an accident. Like, oh, we ate your, first of all, I'm like, why come you didn't collect your own leftovers? Because there were so many leftovers. Yeah. All. <laughs> so, you know, so this, these leftovers I collected. And I had plans for them. And then second of all, um, I felt like they were just sort of like, oh, her leftovers, let's just take them. So yeah. that was my, my, so that made me really angry. That was your story. That was my story. And I remember being like, yeah. malice lives in all your hearts. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then like, whatever, then they, then, then like five seconds later, I was like cooking lunch for the next day, just like, you know, but yeah, yeah but it's very rare, right? So a lot of us, it, it's that comfort with anger. How do we respond to anger? My way was not very productive. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it didn't get me my leftovers back. No, yeah. but maybe next time you'll speak up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, they were sort of like malices in our hearts. Like we were just hungry. <laughs> oh, you're understanding this as like us spining you. Oh, no. Like, yeah. no, or, you know, which I was yeah. really buying into that explanation. But at least, yeah. And that's, yeah, actually sharing your story, right? Like, yeah the story in my head is this correct yeah and like your state is like anger right it's like sympathetic because something happened that you didn't like and you're frustrated and then the story happens like oh they did this on purpose and we do that all the time when we go through life all the time oh they didn't look me in the eye that's because they didn't like me no they're shut down (laughs) and if you like if you start to approach other people in the room like that you often assume the best of people which usually just like makes for better relationships and an easier life. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't think it's something that you should force because I don't think forcing anything is necessarily good. And that might not make you feel safe if you're forcing because choice is really important. But you know, maybe for some people, if they just like use a little bit of curiosity about their state, um, even if it's just like, even if it's like what made me feel this way, if you're like scared of asking your body what it feels like, that's even still just the first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how could one, you know, if, if you have a friend who you can see is sort of in that shutdown mode. So that's really helpful, right? It's like just to be able to know, oh, you know, yeah, that person's not looking me in the eye or just running away. Um, like I've had friends literally just kind of leave the room and you think, what are the, uh, you know, there's that abandonment thing gets triggered, you know, but, um, but now when you sort of understand the nervous system and understand attachment styles, okay, that person's probably in shutdown. Um, Yeah. I wonder how we might be able to help them because sometimes maybe we can just leave them 
but we also, you know, maybe not, maybe, you know, maybe this is the over caretaking side of me. That's yeah. 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 (laughs) I find usually like giving choice is good being like, Hey, first, first noticing it, naming it. Right. Hey, I see you're down. Looks a little bit like you're like you're shut down and Mm. um, like, I'm worried about you. Mm. If you feel like that's appropriate, that might also just be a little bit like making, making them feel pathetic sometimes if like you know you're like oh I'm worried about you sometimes people don't like that yeah yeah exactly um but maybe just you know I see you're down that sucks do you want to talk about it Mm -hmm. and then like do you want to go for a walk or like can I make you dinner or something like that it's often Mm -hmm. a really good Mm -hmm. or do you want to get out of here get some air yeah like this yeah this this party's kind of intense let's maybe go somewhere exactly exactly um and a lot of people too, when they're in that state, they might like company, but they might not necessarily like to chat. So yeah. like often I really like what we call parallel play where it's like, you know, like maybe do crafts together or like watch Netflix together something that doesn't really require interaction, but where like the body is still there and where, you know, if you do have something that comes to mind that you want to say, the person's there, <laughs> but there's, but there's like none of the, so, so one of the signals of threat is judgment. And, um, uh, often people feel judged in social interactions, especially if they have uh, social anxiety, which is like what I've had pretty much my entire life very intensely. Mm-hmm. So like, even though you like, you need that interaction, um, to feel safe and social and it makes you feel good. There's still this like voice like, oh, they don't like me or whatever's going on in your head, which is stressful and puts you into sympathetic. So sometimes having like another reason for being together that takes the, um, that takes the performance aspect out of it or like, or, mm-hmm. or, or there's like, there's, there's less pressure mm-hmm. to talk, right. Then that can, that can create more of a safe environment for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that the parallel play thing, you know, which I think is really interesting. We think of the circumstances with quarantine where so much of it is, was like the social interaction was like zoom chats or video chat where you're just gazing, not even at someone's eyes, because in order to do that, I have to look at my camera. Yeah. (laughs) Which is looking at you. (laughs) Um, but um, but we're not doing, I mean, maybe, yeah, you could connect via Zoom and just do parallel play and just have the person connect. I know some people were doing that, actually. A bit. Yeah, yeah. Just being connected while going about their, their day and yeah. their, um, or their tasks, and then you can kind of just make a comment, be like, oh, Steph, you know, how's that broccoli tasting that you're cooking? And then go yeah. back to doing your thing. But yeah. I think a lot of it, the expectation is like this keeping in touch thing where we go, you know, head to head and have a conversation, you know, yeah, yeah. not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. Or like catch up, catch up. Or yeah. Talk about the weather. <laughs> yeah. So much How's that weather? It's pretty yeah. rainy out. Yeah. I think this is also why I love my job is because I can get like right down to the serious stuff. And I love the serious stuff. I love talking about, like, I really wasn't good at dating. Cause I'd be like, tell me your trauma, which like, yeah. I really, do. but like, it just like, without even me saying that it would go there and I'd be awkward, but like, comfortable. Yeah. Well, but also I think part of it too, is just knowing that there's something below the surface. So if somebody, yeah. you know, yeah. someone's talking about the weather, you just want to name it. 
Yeah, but you're like, okay, there's a value here. When we're talking about the weather, it's not, we're not specifically like, oh, the weather. I'm like, but I talk about the weather because yeah. of surf forecasts. Very yeah. interesting to talk about the weather. Someone knows the weather really well. Yeah. You're my buddy. But, um, but it's understanding, yeah, like, okay, why, why the weather? Oh, something's important to them about, you know. So I think, yeah, when you're trained to look deeper, then it's really hard to just stay at that yeah. level. It can go vertical pretty quickly. Super difficult, yeah. But another safe and social, um, I was just reminded of another signal that we can send out over Zoom is that of mirroring. So mirroring is when you copy the other person's movement, whether that's like going like this or like this. And we like naturally mirror what the other person is doing just to show them that we're intrigued, that we're engaged, that we're safe. Um, so one of my friends has been doing this like expressive art sessions over zoom. And for one of them, we actually like, we, we did, uh, like hand movements of how it felt, how the session felt. And then everybody copied it. It was really cute. And it felt so good. <laughs> what was your, what was your hand motion? I don't know. Yeah. Right now I want to go like this. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then everybody else did it. And it was like, oh my God. So nice. really good in here yeah and in here well you felt validated you're like oh yeah everybody had the yes. same experience it's that rewarding feeling of you know we all had a similar experience but this is evidence that it was a really similar experience from internally as well you know it wasn't us yeah. like if you're all looking at the same thing like that analogy of the elephant where um people who are blindfolded touch an elephant one person goes oh they touch the tail oh it's the snake and one person touches the foot oh it's a tr- it's a tree trunk but you're like, we're all looking at the same elephant. We're all experiencing life in the same way. We're all together. It's yeah. true. Yeah. We're all making yeah. this hand motion in response to the same session that we were in. You know? Yeah. 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 Like it reminds us of like the greater stuff and it puts things into perspective. And I love the actually, you know, so um, when you're talking about the hands on the body, the um, yeah. self-holds are called. Self-holds. That's right. Yeah. And this, this comes up a lot. There's a book, Bouncing Back by Linda Graham. who t- It's a book about resilience. And then um, Kristen Neff and, and Self-Compassion. There's a lot of hands on the body for oxytocin release. Uh, release. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember actually had a bit of a breakthrough with a patient talking about this last week where I was like, it, it's because if I put my hands on my body, I'm like, okay, I feel a hand touching. I'm, I'm more in my hands as the... Um, experience it's kind of like looking through a chain link fence where you can look at the chain links and then the background's blurry you know sort of a uh, what do you call it shallow depth of focus (laughs) you know like a camera lens or you can focus on the background then the chain is blurry so I'm like yeah I can feel myself touching my body but I can also focus which takes a little bit more effort on my body being receiving the touch and mm. there's something all automatically soothing about that. And I think we did it together and she was like, oh, right. Yeah. Like it, it does feel like being held, you know? Yeah. Beautiful. It can be really powerful. It's super can. Yeah. 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 And the hand on the, on the face. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so nice. <laughs> uh, it reminded me of like, have you seen the, the Midnight Gospel on Netflix? Oh yeah. It's so good. Uh, that last episode where oh. it's like, talking about like meditation and they they start with the finger like feel what it's like to be in your finger to be your finger what does that feel like and then like feel it the hand and then the arm and then the other arm and then like your limbs oh it's so good it's mm-hmm. so good 
Yeah. yeah. What's it like to, yeah. Concentrate all of you in, in, in your finger, the tip of your finger. Yeah. And all of a sudden there's a change in your experience, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. So intense. Mm-hmm. So but good. you, meanwhile, you always have a finger. It's no sensation in your finger, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, again, it's that like subconscious that can come into your consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much information, right? We need to like pick out what's important. And really it's the danger that's important. Yeah. That's what's going to help us survive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. That's, I think this idea of like the negative bias where it's like, why is it so hard to appreciate things? It's because, I mean, if you just appreciated things and didn't focus on what was dangerous, you wouldn't survive. So it really is like a, a conscious shift to try and focus on the things you want to, right? Like to focus on the tip of your finger yeah. takes a lot of work because the tip of your finger for evolutionary purposes is kind of irrelevant unless you've cut it or hurt it, you know, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you're using it for something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also with the negativity bias, like the opposite can also happen where like, if you remember an experience that you absolutely loved that made you feel all of those good things, the, like, the same physiology will happen as when you actually experienced it. And the more you go back to it, the more it will have this like, really good effect on your life where you remember perhaps the like, last month as a very positive experience, which can also be awful in relationships that are really rocky, right? Like when you look back and you're like focusing on that good stuff, but like really it's just got to end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, and the random reward, the, the invariable reward, right? Yeah. Where it's like you, you just, you want another hit of that dopamine. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you're like, I'm miserable, I'm miserable, I'm miserable, but I'm going to get that text message that I crave and validate me and establish my attachment security. And I also like this chase because it's what I'm used to and all that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But, but I think, I think, yeah, in EMDR, they talk about safe place where you visualize, you know, maybe um, a mythological place or um, or a real yeah. S- situation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Whenever I hear like EMDR, I'm always like, Oh yeah, my safe place. <laughs> yeah. But that's as far I as I love like, my safe too. place. Yeah. <laughs> my, safe place. <laughs> my safe place is like at my favorite music festival in a field where like this amazing band was playing in the background. And I was with my part, like an ex partner at the time, but I was like in love in that moment. And like, everything was just perfect. Like I always go back to that. Always go back to that. Yeah. Right. So there you have really secure attachment. So, you know, regardless of how things turned out, it was in that moment, there was real secure attachment. You're not quite in the, I'm not visualizing you sort of in the midst of the crowd. It's in the background. You've created your bubble. I'm just like, but there's still like community and there's like nature and you're like on an island in a lake and there's like good music. I always love music. I use music to change my moods all the time. Like talk about like when like I'm in shutdown and I need to stay in shutdown because it's like it's feeling comfortable, which isn't always a good sign, but like <laughs> depends on the person, right? But like when I know that I've been going too hard, too fast, too long, um, like listening to some really calming music is like key, key, key. Mm. Um, and then I definitely have like some like more punk, like loud, sometimes screaming music that like I'll pull out once in a while where it's just like, I just need to get rid of some energy on my way home from work, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, releasing that pent up yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then lately I'm super into Father John Misty, which is probably more of like the shutdown stuff because he's like, 
he's an artist who's super depressed and like so lovely, but like really down on the world and like, mm. but his music is so beautiful. So I think in some ways that has like really helped me to like hold space for mm. those like sad feelings, you know, mm-hmm. and like for the frustration of like where the world is at in so many ways in terms of, you know, mm like inequalities, but also the environment and then also COVID. Like it's just layer on layer right now. Mm. It's a lot. Mm. Yeah. It's I'm inter- lot. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm wondering about, cause you were saying, you know, sometimes I want to stay in shutdown, but the way that you describe John Misty, what's his name? Father John Misty. Father yeah. John Misty. The way you describe the music, it doesn't sound like you're, and you can correct me, that, that you're like dissociating when you listen to it. Almost is like something about that resonance. Um, or that shared common humanity of like, yeah. he's in, he's describing this place. I'm in this place. It almost seems like it's bringing you up the ladder. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's yeah. not shutting you down further to listen to someone yeah. describing that state. Yeah. And it's like somebody coming and saying like, hey, I understand you. I get where you're at. Like, it's okay to stay there. But by that, you're already creating that connection that's mm-hmm. like, working that vagal break, the vagal break is like your vagus nerve allowing things in and not, and like making sure that all of the states are appropriate to the environment. Right. So like you're accessing that place where you have a little bit more control over your state, a little bit more emotional regulation, even though you're in the sad. Yeah. Even though you feel the shutdown. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're just heading into the sad. You're like, let me just stay in the sad. But by doing that, I, it's like a paradox. Now I'm actually, yeah. Not out of the sad, but I'm in this, um, the safe and secure place. Safe yeah. and social. By being yeah. social, by, you know, Father John Misty and, you know, yeah, sharing. Yeah, yeah, Thanks for that. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but then sometimes I listen to it and I'm like, oh, this is annoying. Like, it's beautiful, but it's annoying because I'm not there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You're like, I need the punk rock. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, smash <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to scream in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's something. To be, yeah, because this idea of, um, I, I think you know, last March, I remember texting my friend and being like, "So it was this idea of you know all the things that I help people with." This is last March. I'm like all these things I help people with, um, fatigue and hormonal imbalance and mood is I am I am I am I have a low mood. I'm definitely hormonally imbalanced and I am fatigued and like all of the health issues that people are coming to me with. I'm I feel all of it and I was really not in a great place. And I remember just wanting to lie on the couch and eat. And I was like, maybe this is healing. My friend's like, yeah, maybe you're in a space where you are um, developing empathy for that need to do that. And it's not wrong. And eventually you will get up off the couch. (laughs) This is the idea of healing. And, um, but, you know, by forcing it, maybe, you know, your body is not ready. It's like, like, yeah, this like being in shutdown, or I don't know if it was full shutdown, but it was kind of in that in the middle, like it was on the edge of maybe a couple steps up the ladder, let's say. But it did feel, you know, it felt bad when I was worried about it. Like, how long am I going to be here my entire life? Yeah. Day, you know, but or yeah. it made it mean things. But if I was just like, you know, it just feels right to just lie on the couch and watch Netflix and and let's see what happens in. Yeah. Let me give myself yeah. time, you know, let me listen to Father John Misty. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not easy to do. Like our culture is so focused on productivity. I find it impossible to relax, uh, which is why I'm so glad that my partner's good at it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, 
I need people. Like maybe that's why I love the parallel play thing. I need people to be able to sit down. Like if there's dishes to be done or like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to clean that closet. I'm going to like, until I literally am just staring at the wall and then I'm like dissociated. And like, if I'm dissociated, that's not really all that helpful anymore. Right. Because then like, I don't really know what I need or want anymore. Mm. Um, like I'm not in my body anymore. Um, you know, if I'm like watching too much Netflix or mm. like, you know, playing a computer game or something for too long, it gets to a point where like, okay, for the first half hour or hour, that was probably restful, but then you're just like so tuned out that it's like, it's not really good anymore. Mm. Yeah. And you feel stuck. I think that's. Yeah. The, you get stuck. Yeah. Like, I, I like, feel like I'm done getting enjoyment out of this video, yeah. game, but I can't stop. Yeah. And I think, I think people in general are pretty good at knowing when they're stuck. Like a lot of people will use that to explain what their mental health feels like, (laughs) right? Like a lot of people just intuitively use the word stuck, but sometimes, like I said before, sometimes it can also just be like really comforting. And I think especially in a way that like, sometimes if you're hanging out in the sympathetic for a very long time, it can just be like so much that to like go one step further down where you just don't care. Um, can just feel really, really soothing, um, but also dangerous. Um, especially, you know, if, if there's some of that fear around like starting to move again, and especially if you start to develop like, um, panic around coming into contact with other people, right? Because like the longer it's been since you've had a social interaction, especially like a good social interaction, it's hard to like, be be interactive with somebody and show those facial muscles and right like it's a little bit of like a thing you need to flex it's a thing you're supposed to learn from your parents mm-hmm. totally. and your or your community I should say your community I really don't think it's like solely up to the parents mm-hmm. but like today a whole lot of parents are in fight or flight and in shutdown and they're not able to do that for their kids right because you know um because we don't take care of each other very well. <laughs> and we're in these nuclear family units, which now yeah. it's being revealed to us, like we really did have a village, but it wasn't quite a village. You know, we had daycares and we had um, yeah. child in school, but, but now yeah. that's all shut down. It's really just the, the nuclear family units. Yeah, are- 100%. But even when, even when we had school, so like, so what, you go to like, what, grade 12 with all your friends, if you're lucky, like you didn't all change schools. And then you go to all to different universities. Mm-hmm. And then you go to university and you have your university friends. And then you go to all your different jobs. Like there's so many mm-hmm. interruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can make it really difficult, especially for people where it takes like a little bit longer to build mm-hmm. trust. Mm-hmm. I, t- I completely relate to this, like, social socialization being a muscle that you flex like I remember moments when yeah like being in shutdown throughout my life for periods of time and then returning back to the social world and feeling so socially awkward and I actually had a few moments where I remember feeling you know throughout this quarantine like I feel like I'm I'm so my my like um, socially awkward (laughs) years definitely like middle school right is like this classic time (laughs) when horrifically we're social awkward. I remember thinking back to that um so so like observing my behavior in my state and thinking I feel like I am 13 again in some some ways and I feel like I've moved past all that stuff or healed a lot of that stuff um and I'm like what's going on and then 
it just kind of occurred to me, like, you just haven't had social practice, you know, with the, the small acquaintanceships, like saying hi, making small talk with the, with the barista at your coffee shop, those things, you know, making small talk with the cashier at the grocery store. Now, you know, cashiers rightfully so are terrified, especially at the beginning of this whole thing. They're yeah. not in safe and social at all to just kind of chat with you about bananas or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's all stay behind that line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then without the social cues, like, I mean, I have kind of a funny story where I bought um, children's books for my friend that just had a baby and I sent them via Amazon and they were just books I loved as a kid, probably as like a seven-year-old kid though. And then I remember thinking, oh, those, they're having a baby. These books are not baby books, even though babies <laughs> can't read any books. And I was like, oh, baby books are kind of like those big cardboard books of the books that float in the bathroom. I'm like, what I did was weird. I didn't buy um, an age appropriate gift. And then, which is a ridiculous thing. And this is one of the things that I outsourced of my, to my friend who was like, it's fine at baby showers, you get all kinds of things like, but I was like, yeah. it's like me buying size, you know, 18 jeans for a baby and being like, Oh, he'll grow into, or she'll grow into them. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I just was stuck in this thing yeah. feeling, um, sort of outcasted, just very strange. It's such a small example, yeah. but it was just such a strange experience. And then I was like, what is going on? Why am I so self-conscious and socially awkward? And it was, you know why? There isn't the social cue of if we were at an actual gathering and they unwrapped the gift and I saw compared to the other gifts, it was kind of age inappropriate. I may have made a joke. They would have laughed, smoothed it over and said, oh, of course, we we were asking for books. Babies can't read any books and these are great. And all these books are teaching you about psychological schemas and complexes and that formed you. And that's really cute and personal. And thank you. (laughs) You know? Yeah, yeah. So it was these kind of things where it was just yeah. like without that feedback, yeah, you know, sending gifts into a void, yeah, the mind just fills in the blanks. And it was and without, very... w- without her nervous system telling your nervous system it's okay. It's like a whole nother thing to like see it typed in an email, right? You like need the body language too. Yeah. Like, thank you for the gift. And you're like, what does she mean by that? Is yeah. that thank you for the gift? Or is it thank you for yeah. the gift? <laughs> yeah. Or like, they just don't want you to be embarrassed. Yeah. You know? They're just taking care of you. That's right. Yeah. And then they're like, oh my God, guess what Talia did? Yeah. That was, yeah. I think I saw a funny meme about exclamation marks. And like the first one is to show that I'm friendly. This, the the, right. the accent is I don't put an exclamation mark because it's too many. The third one is, yeah, it's like all the, all the meanings. It's so funny. Yeah. But it, it really makes me wonder what things are going to look like. I mean, I feel like it's going to be a very slow process. But I mean, once we're at a point where we can go into each other's homes again and sit down and have dinners again, or like go to, I don't want to say a bar because I don't, I don't really drink all that much these days, but like go to a restaurant and feel like comfortable not wearing a mask and having the chairs a little bit like that kind of an environment and being social in that kind of environment, what that's going to do for people. And I know there's some people that are already doing this, even like in my community, our restaurants are open and you can take off your mask while you eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my community, we're still like in my friend community, we're still very aware of who we're in contact with and what our bubbles are like. Mm. Um, so it's going to look very interesting. Like even just like getting together in a park and sitting two meters from one another, mm. like it's, it's definitely weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a way that like you also realize what it is that we're grieving, mm. right? Cause like 
if I'm at home and on Zoom, some of that is still from before pandemic days. Like, sure, it's a lot more now, but sometimes like my nervous system forgets what it's missing, if that makes sense. And then I see a body that I really, really want to hug, but I can't hug. And then I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> I need that hug so badly. And I love this person so much and I never see them anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that. that- flooding back and then it's like a lot of social awkwardness yeah. but right because do I hug yeah. do I elbow tap do we yeah do we touch yeah um, or also yeah when you start to that idea of oh this is what I'm missing like I remember yeah yeah feeling that when I would see someone be like oh wow that's right what it's like to and then I remember having yeah. these really strong cravings to sit around a campfire with people very specific a campfire a group of people <laughs> around a campfire and people and you're not it's again that parallel play but but we're sort of just making comments making jokes banter just like those stupid offhand little things yes you're looking at the stars your mind's kind of wandering and you're just you're just together you're not having these focused zoom conversations like this kind of thing was i was naming it like i want a group of like six or more people campfire and we're just witty banter (laughs) yeah you're just hanging out yeah yeah you know yeah, uh, it was actually on. Um, so there was there was a storm uh, on the weekend. On the weekend, and so that yeah. made, um, waves on the lakes. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. So everyone else is cowering inside. I was like figuring out my day, planning it all. Nice. And so in Lake Erie, so Sunday evening there were waves on Lake Erie, and uh, a lot of people heard about this. It's Sunday night, so there's like, and you know, you don't think that a great lake the Great Lakes have has a huge surfer community until you see when there's a big day and the waves were scary way out of my comfort zone so I was kind of like I could paddle out in that but I wasn't like I definitely was out of my window of tolerance to actually take a wave yeah it was like you have to take at least one and then I just wiped out lost my oar ring it was just and then I was like yeah Yeah, (laughs) it was okay and um yeah I'm like at least I tried um, yeah. So we're like in this crazy like storm-like conditions, a, a big group of people, all social distancing, obviously, because it's like you're surfing, you can't be near people anyways, but just a big group of people, this kind of, you're not really talking, um, but I saw a lot of people that I, that I knew before I hadn't seen in a while. Yeah. And at one point the sun comes out and there's this amazing, perfect, I've never seen a rainbow like this. It was a perfect arch. It was like Lucky mm-hmm. Charms cereal box, you mm-hmm. know? the the six colors just completely mm-hmm. fleshed out there was kind of a double rainbow but the the main one was really strong opaque almost and it was like wow and so you're kind of trying to enjoy it dealing with the waves and it was just this magical moment where i was like this is what it's all about yeah <laughs> and um yeah, and it was just kind of like, you know, but these sort of spontaneous moments where it had all the things it's like you're moving your body you're in nature um, you're, you're with people, there's this camaraderie, but it isn't necessarily intense focused interaction. You're just together in these circumstances. Then this beautiful thing happens that was totally unexpected that the earth just kind of offered up and the sense of awe and Yeah. yeah, it just was, you know, I miss those so much. I'm like, the uh, the spontaneity, like you know, like just going going out, and 
I don't know, like going for a walk in a park and running into a friend and then having a walk with that friend. And then, whereas now it's like, oh, what are you doing? Like, do you have a mask? I don't even really feel comfortable like walking and social distancing because then you're passing other people. And, you know, it, like everything requires so much planning. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. But, yeah. But I'm also so lucky because I'm still seeing people in clinic. So like I'm, I'm doing acupuncture in clinic. So I do have like some face-to-face like I do see my front desk like there's two other naturopaths that practice in here Mm -hmm. um so that is like oh my god it's so helpful for my nervous system days when they're not in and I come in it's like it's a huge bummer it like almost ruins my day (laughs) you're alone yeah yeah I'm like baby gotta be home tonight because like I've had no social interaction today yeah yeah see another human at least once please yeah Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Are you still doing community acupuncture? Like, or is it uh, so community one? acupuncture is closed right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just kind of feeling things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like whether or not I go back is in question too, because mm-hmm. it's like, it's a business and it's COVID, you know, and really like in this world, it could probably be a one man show for a little bit or one woman show, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're going to see, mm. but, um, I hope to go back. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was just going to say it's powerful it. regulation because not yeah. only is it the acupuncture, there's other people receiving acupuncture. I mean, you can definitely social distance. But it's just, uh, it's just kind of strange because not typical business, not like a restaurant that we kind of can have rules around. It's like, Oh, what are you doing? You're doing acupuncture altogether. It's kind of like a yoga class, like a Shabbat's at the end of a yoga class. Like you're, everyone's still in their, in their places, but yeah. There's something co-regulatory about community acupuncture. 100%. And I actually, like, when I got into polyvagal theory, one of the reasons why I adored it is because it really explained a lot of why community acupuncture works. So, like, mm-hmm. the fact that, sure, there is an authority figure, right? Like, we, we do know more about acupuncture than our clients do, but they do outnumber us. Um, and we do, we're, we're on a stool when we needle them. So we're not hovering over them. We don't wear white coats. Um, really there's like minimal talk because we just really need the information of what we need mm-hmm. to needle. Like, like low tones too. Low tones. Yeah. Lots okay. of whispering. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is in sight. It's like in a circle. So you can like see the circle mm-hmm. at all times. You like you choose what chair you want to sit in, what blanket you want to use, whether you want a blanket or not, but also like how far you lean back. Mm. Um, people like keep their clothes on, right? Like we we needle elbows below and knees and below. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's just so much, mm-hmm. so much lovely about it. Mm-hmm. And you're like sharing our time. So um, it's more affordable and more accessible, but then also... Um, we get more experience because we're needling more people per hour. Mm. Um, and it's also like as a job, it's a little bit more secure than doing just acupuncture mm. um, because a lot of people who go through acupuncture school, you know, it's similar to NDs. It's pretty hard to make it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, um, and, yeah. and it's like, it's not huge competition to people who are doing one on one acupuncture because it's very different. Like most of the people we see wouldn't be able to afford Mm-hmm. one-on-one to begin with they wouldn't be able to go into acupuncture to begin with mm-hmm. um, and then also there's the the amount of treatments so like um it's important usually to get acupuncture more than once a week for most of the things we see and that's just not doable in a one-on-one situation yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so powerful, right? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, there's sort of the individual experience with one-on-one acupuncture, right? So that has yeah. its benefits. But then with community, you can extend the benefits by going regularly, you know? Yeah, so yeah. Fertility treatment or regulating. Yeah. And then you're like, you're on the on the table on your own one-on-one. And then like, maybe you like, me personally, sometimes I feel like a little bit awkward. Like, do I talk to the practitioner? Do I not talk? What is, whereas community acupuncture, it's all kind of like intuitive the way it's set up mm. and you're like encouraged to be quiet with the needles in. That's kind of just mm. what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like, there's way less pressure to like, go to your deepest, tell me your trauma. No, I don't need to know that. I just need to know, like, are you feeling anxious? Is it somewhere in particular in your body? Really? I don't have to know that, but it's helpful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, are you sleeping? Like those kind of questions. It's like mm-hmm. fairly surfacey questions, mm-hmm. um, and then people can get help for stuff. It's great, mm-hmm. so great. Yeah, yeah. Like seeing other people relax helps us relax, right? There's like also that mirroring thing, mm-hmm. and then like the the signals from other people that it's safe to sleep in this room with other strangers. Yeah, right. Yeah, oh, exactly. Guys. Like, well, if that if the person beside me is dozing yeah. off and snoring then it must be okay you know you get that permission that social permission yeah and for like first timers they can come in like children can come in with their moms mm. or their dads or their like or their other parent mm. um um and that can be super safe where you know you can come in with a friend if you're mm. feeling anxious about it and they can get needled and then you can get needled mm-hmm. it's great it's yeah so great Acupuncture is so powerful. Like I know, you know, it just reveals so much. Yeah. It's this idea of, of somatic therapy, you know, and like you said, do you really need to talk that much? Like, cause the body talks, you know, so some, I mean, talking is great. Talk therapy is super helpful in so many ways, but there it's not for everyone and you don't want necessarily people to not receive the help that they might want just because they don't really want to sit and just talk to a therapist yeah. or someone, you know, for sessions and sessions. Yeah. Or, or they can't because they're just like so dissociated from that trauma because mm-hmm. their body's protecting them from it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And maybe talking yeah. takes you out of your window of tolerance or maybe it's just not helpful. Maybe all you really do is talk about it. And now there needs to be some further integration in some way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or like your client that you're talking about where he could like recall the entire thing and there would be no emotion there. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like so, talking about it isn't really doing anything except right. for maybe like knowing that somebody else is carrying your story too. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it's difficult to, as a, as a practitioner, I'm hearing the story. Um, I'm seeing emotional expression from his, his wife. Um, so there is an emotional tone in the room, but it's not coming from him. And so it's not eliciting an emotional response in me to be able to mirror or match. It's it sort of, um, it's really just information, you know? And so once that information's conveyed, maybe we don't really need to talk anymore, you know, unless it's helpful for him, but it seemed like he, he knew his story was reciting it and to kind of fill yeah. me in, but it wasn't doing much for him to, to speak it. And potentially, and it's hard to see this, especially as a new practitioner, but it was potentially actually doing him harm to speak about it because mm-hmm. you know, he seemed calm. He was under his, he was down the ladder, right? He was dissociated. Yeah. So, um, whereas it looks like, okay, he's, he's good. He's not, you know, you know, getting, having a panic attack and he's not throwing things. He's not dysregulated, but he was dysregulated. It just is not as, as a parent when it's, um, hypo arousal. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or like when people aren't crying, right? Mm-hmm. When there's not like the signals that we typically associate mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. arousal. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then so with um, Deb Jaina, it's the things that, that promote safety is context, choice and connection the three c's yeah 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 and that was i don't know if that she has a new book i don't know if it's in the new book um but it was i got that from a podcast the Mm stuff not broken podcast yeah talking about the new book so who knows Mm. that used to be yes it used to be the polyvagal podcast now it's stuck in and broken that's it's like yeah yeah Uh Yeah. I prefer the polyvagal podcast. Yeah, at least you know you're like, oh, it's gonna be. Po-. Yeah, I have it in my uh, Apple podcast. I've subscribed, but I'm yeah. You're like, at least I know it's about polyvagal. But you know, I think like you said, people do identify with the word stuck, and we identify yeah. with the word broken, right? There, this idea of there's something wrong with me, um, and it's nice to know that no, you know, yeah, normal physiological response. Let's learn about 100%. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um- even the learning about it is therapeutic, you know? That's what's so special about it. Foucault's yeah. knowledge is power. Yeah. <laughs> gives you cho- yeah, gives you some choice in the matter, some context. Exactly. And some connection because if someone's talking about it on a podcast, it means that you're not the only one. That's a big thing too. It's like this idea of the common humanity that you mentioned with um, Father John Misty or even just talking yeah. about stuff. It's like, oh, you know what? If the fact that I'm having this experience, emotional or mental... I'm probably not the, unless I'm, I'm like Bjork level creative, I'm probably, and even Bjork is just harnessing common humanity to create her, her kind of like interesting art, right? Yeah. So this, this emotion, this thought has occurred before in somebody else's body, someone else's consciousness. I'm not alone with it. Um, possibly one of the other 9 billion people on this planet is feeling the exact same way, you know? So yeah thing about that where you're like there's there's a connection there to just know that someone's talking about these things yeah and that can happen in all art forms too right like it can happen in not not just in music but it can happen in dance mm-hmm. it can happen like through books or poetry through like visual art mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent. and sometimes like i'll like art not because i like the way it looks but the way it makes me feel right i'm like why does this make me angry <laughs> <laughs> but i love it yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I tend to go for like the sorrowful, sad, mm-hmm. beautiful stuff. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to amplify this emotion to look at it. Well, that's actually another thing too. Is that let me amplify this to to validate it and yeah. to really flesh it out because I'm feeling this kind of eh eh feeling, and then you 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 feel you resonate with what you're listening to, what you're looking at, what you're reading about. Yeah. Oh, okay yeah, this is a valid thing. It's a little bit bigger now and I can actually let it, let it show yeah. me what it needs to show me maybe, or yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, imagine if we were raised in a community where it was like, emotions are valuable, where like we asked like, why is it that that kid is having t- temper tantrums or why are there these behavioral issues or like, you know, why do we make kids sit in school and listen for most of their time there? Um, what if we encourage people to have emotions instead of trying to make people focus on their cognitive processes all the time? 
would we need to still amplify our emotions or would we just like be a little bit more intuitively aware of what's going on? You know, like those gut feelings, maybe we'd actually know what those were and they'd be a very, very useful tool for most people. Right. <laughs> I feel like as a society, we're very much like just walking around heads most of the time, not really like like being blind to a whole lot of things because we're not listening to a huge part of our nervous system that has some very valuable information. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're always like, Oh, I think therefore I am. It's like the thought process that rules all it like, it's, it's what differentiates us from animals, you know, like it's all this weird twisted talk of like, yeah, we need to be on the top of the hierarchy and control nature. <laughs> yeah, that's actually yeah. My my friend so Victor, who's been he's been on this podcast twice, and he's like Descartes is where it yes. all went wrong. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's why we have this society that we have because yeah. the mind and body are separate. Animals don't have souls. The whole thing, right? Yeah, and you know, if if an animal doesn't have a soul, like if Coco doesn't have a soul, um then my, my animal body doesn't have one either. It's only my head, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so the animal of my body needs to be dissociated from, disconnected from, over, overruled, overcome, like you said, the willpower, the diets. Like yes. the animal asking me to eat is invalid. I need to yes. suppress it. And this whole yeah. thing like, gets us into trouble sometimes, you know? Yeah. Let's, like, put, like, let's suppress our drives. Like even, even our approach to sexuality, right? It's like, you got to just avoid it, avoid it, shame, shame, shame. And then of course, like a good population of a, a good proportion of our population will have like these weird, like these odd approaches to sexuality that are sometimes very dangerous, not always, but sometimes. Um, but I mean, that's partly because of how we view it in this shame circle. Like if we talked a little bit more, which I mean, now we talk, at least in my community, we talk about it way more, but like consent and safe spaces and, you know, having like having safer ways to express those drives and urges, it can be like so therapeutic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah like, exactly. like um, Mauricio Yoar, who's also on this podcast. So many like <laughs> other episodes tie in. It's so I feel weird. like we should all get together. <laughs> yeah. Have like a, just a big conference. Um, he's a sex therapist and he uses narrative therapy and uh, talks about this. His sexuality, it's, it's like, it's a drive. And then he said something else, but it's also, it's also something that's been socialized, right? So we have the, yes, drive, we have yep. the socialization. And then sometimes those two things don't, aren't in alignment. It's like my body wants this, but this is how I quote unquote should be. Yeah. Women yeah. should be like this or a whatever should be like this. And so, um, so what happens when those things are, are, um, they're, um, inconsolable or, I don't even know what the word I'm trying to look for, but you know what I mean? Like you're like shame gener- is generated and when, where shame is dissonance. What, yeah, this dissonance. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Then there's this, this marginalization or this like um, acting out. And then that can be pathologized. Like this idea of sex addiction where he's like, is it really an addict? Is that really a thing? There's this yeah. around that. And you know, yeah, 100%. actually one really interesting thing he said was, so his PhD is with, um, youth sex offenders which is a very interesting area of study because you're like whoa that's that's you know um if you're talking about marginalization it's hard for even open-minded people to be like oh that's the group i'm going to empathize the most with because these are Mm -hmm. typically people causing 
trauma to others, right? But those are also who have been deeply traumatized. And he said that a lot of it, when he expresses that, when he just educates um, some people in this population about the idea of consent, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, never thought about it like that. No one ever told me about that. Okay, cool. <laughs> and it's like, wow, that is such a simple intervention that we, you know, easily you could kind of label that person as like something's wrong with them. They were born this way. There was something, but it's like, oh, they just didn't know. There was just no conversation around consent in their household or in their school or it just wasn't communicated. And the way that they identified with sex was, was problematic in many ways, you know, yeah. so this whole thing, like you said about you yeah. know, the body, the mind, the social, how we're socialized. Yeah. And- yeah. I recently came across some research that talked about people with a porn addiction and how if they were, um, they were led to believe that it actually wasn't that shameful, that they, that that actually really helped their addiction, that like the shame part was part of their addiction and driving their addiction. So perhaps if, mm-hmm. if we like had a healthier view of it overall, yeah, like it's it's like i won't need to hide yeah and like and there's just there's so so much pain that happens out of like people feeling like they don't belong right like being being deviant or being like on the outskirts of society whatever that may be you know whether it's like um race or like gender non-conforming or whatever um hmm like we're, we're, it's important for us to be long. And like that alone can sometimes be traumatic because people view us as other. And then when they view us as other, like they're not co-regulating with us and that like, it feels dangerous. And then, you know, a lot of these people go through life, um, like with a really high danger cues mm-hmm. thrown at them all the time. Right. Um, yeah. Actually in psychology in Seattle, they do do deep dive on on suicide, um, and the the biggest risk factor for suicide ideation and and actually, um, and the act is is not de- like you would think it would be depression or trauma. It's a lack of belonging, and yeah. that's the so it's it is and you yeah. hear a lot of stories where people be like when I reached out or had an uh, like unsuccessful attempt. Um, there's better terminology that I'm that's escaping me, yeah. but you know, like inc- incomplete or you know, I attempted, and and I'm still alive. Um, they were like, it it was a you know, in in getting that sense of belonging or in having that person that showed care, it made all the difference. And the, you hear a lot of stories like this where um, feeling like you still have an accountability to your community or you still have a connection with them or you belong somehow. And yeah. even talking with patients, they'll say, we often ask the question, like, what keeps you here if someone's having suicidal ideation? And they'll usually reference, you know, someone in their life, whether it be a pet or their parents or, or mm-hmm. somebody, you know, that they belong to in a sense or that they have a sense of belonging with. So it's big, you mm-hmm. know. Huge. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's this huge myth, too, around uh, suicide that like as as soon as you ask people about it it's more likely to happen like you're encouraging the behavior because you're making it okay and that is not true no. <laughs> yeah like just talking about it alone can sometimes be a huge relief mm. and like you said like reinforce that connection mm. feeling understood feeling like you know there's a way out there's hope even just like having your story be be heard mm. or like see somebody who 
who's like interested in why or what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Avoiding the situation. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's kind of like making me, me, this, me think like, you know, the sense of belonging um, is not just like, oh, and something that's nice. It's yeah. actually life preserving, you know, yeah. alive. It's, it's a necessity. It's a fundamental necessity to life. And without it, there's actually a risk to, um, to survival, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, the, how Stephen Porges actually came up with a polyvagal theory was he was studying um, heart rate variability. Yeah. Do you know about heart rate variability? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the difference between like two or more heartbeats. And the bigger that difference is, um, the better, like the lower your risks for things like cardiovascular disease disease, diabetes, all cause, all cause mortality. So like you're more likely to die and be sick if you have a lower HRV. And so he was like, okay, what makes people have a higher HRV? And it was actually like a sense of belonging and social connectedness um, and feeling safe. So it does like it totally saves lives. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like so important for our physiology. Yeah. yeah. It, actually, it's Fernando so talked about this. He was like having, so there was a study, men in their 50s, they're, they have the lowest risk of cardiovascular disease if they, um, based on the number of close friendships they have. Yeah. And he was like, I got three more years to get me some good friends. <laughs> yeah. And so we were, just, we were laughing about like, yeah, he was like, me, he's like, it might be better to enjoy your chicken, what are they called? McNuggets with your close soulmates than kale with some so so relationships. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so good. 100% true. <laughs> so I love yeah. it. Yeah. Any, any last thoughts, Steph? This was awesome. Um, I don't really think so. Um, <laughs> I just really, I just really want to hit it home that like to be curious is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to go slow, to go at your pace, whatever you do, whatever, whatever help you're looking for, whatever support you're looking for to make sure that you feel comfortable in that relationship with that practitioner. So like, sometimes I hear people say like, Oh, I went to see a naturopath or I went to see a therapist, but it wasn't a good fit. You got to look for the good fit. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be a good fit every time. It's just the way it is. Your personalities have to jive. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be feeling safe and social with your practitioner. You should be feeling safe and social and you shouldn't be forcing anything. So like if, you know, meditation isn't working for you, don't, don't force it. I wouldn't like say write it off forever, but I wouldn't like force it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would maybe try something else or like go for a slow walk or um, do a self hold or um, try and map out your states. Try to write down, you know, what state feels like what. Um, to be super patient. And if you have one of those things like we, we were talking about where you feel very dissociated about it and you just can't talk about it, it's okay for now to not be the time, right? It's, it's okay to not look into that, to not dig deep into that. It's like, I often say, I, I feel like I have this big deep down trauma that like needs to come out. I need, you know, I did a 10 day Vipassana. I got nowhere. Just some anger came out. <laughs> I didn't find it. It might not be there, but it might be there. But you know, it's like, Sometimes you just have to be patient that it's going to come up when and if it needs to, mm-hmm. right? To just like let it happen, but also like be curious about it, search it, find your people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if it needs to, because there's a good article called um, no, 
no, it's not no pain, no gain. It's the opposite, but it's, it's, it's dismantling this idea of no pain, no gain, where it's like, I have to suffer right. to heal. It's no, yeah, no. It, you need to face your trauma. I mean, maybe, but there's also this idea that maybe if there's this deep down trauma, it may be, you know, if you're living the life that makes you happy and, um, and you have satisfaction and joy and you're feeling your emotions, you're embodied and all the things you want, if you're living your preferred life in your preferred identity, maybe it doesn't need to come out, you know, yeah. maybe it does, but maybe not. Yeah. hundred percent. And this is just mm-hmm. be curious about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. interesting maybe not come out sometime yeah maybe. <laughs> yeah exactly maybe it, will. maybe it will see its shadow maybe not <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's life yeah. yeah i don't know yeah so thank you Steph. so i'm gonna have links in the show notes for how people can find you on instagram okay. and your website and and all yeah. the things you offer and thank you so much this is such a yeah. great combo i love it taking the time uh like i've never really explained like polyvagal theory like that that holistically before um, a great job. it was great it, it was a great uh it was a great experience it's also like I do not like talking on podcasts this is my first <laughs> podcast I do not like it but you were like do you want to talk about polyvagal theory and I was like hell yeah I want to talk about polyvagal like I can't say no to that <laughs> so you got me podcast can be yeah that my mission is to make it feel like it's you're not in a podcast and sometimes yeah. I achieve that sometimes not so no I it felt like pretty good a- yeah it felt pretty good <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank See you, you later. So much. Bye. Bye. Bye.